What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Hello, and welcome back to a Tuesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined because it's Tuesday by old friend John Taylor up there in Manhattan, New York. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. About yourself. I am not too not too bad, John. Um, are you still uh, just, I don't even know what word to describe this. Um, are you still just dousing yourself in New Yorker um, magazines? Is that the, the most recent update? Or have you, have you changed course? Have you added something else to the Rolodex? Uh, started watching The Great on Hulu, so I'm, I'm, I'm now adding some TV to the mix. <laughs> Mm-hmm. In between some reading, uh, an enjoyable show, enjoyable show right there. A little bit of a dark comedy about Catherine the Great, as one does. Mm-hmm. Uh, still very far behind on the New Yorkers, but we're we're climbing up that mountain. Mm-hmm. You know, Everest wasn't summited in a day. Neither True. will this. True. So you know, eyes on the prize, though. Eyes on the prize. I like it. I like it. Um, on today's show, we're going to talk about Salvador Perez getting the richest contract in Kansas City Royal history. Um, as one does, Carlos Carrasco tearing his hamstring, Miguel Anduar uh, not returning to in-game action anytime soon, and Bobby Witt Jr. starting on the minors, and then uh, the 2021 Washington Nationals. Um, first things first, though, John, did you see the Baby Orioles video that they released today on Twitter? I did not, but that's a phrase that I don't understand or really like. Oh, so are they... Are they talking about young Orioles players or literal baby Oriole birds? No, 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 no. Um, young Orioles players because they opened up a new facility okay. in the Dominican Republic. Okay. And it looks so, unreal. So we're talking like what, like SEC football facility type yes. shit? Yes. Okay. Like big, you know, locker room, mm-hmm. weight room, water slide, all that fun stuff? It looks like their own beautiful beach getaway resort. It's Enough where it's like, if you're Chris Davis, you're like, can I just finish out my contract in the Dominican Republic at this facility? Can I just ride it out there so I'm not actively hurting the team and also just living this lavish lifestyle in uh, the DR? Yeah, if I'm an or- if I'm an Orioles player, I'm telling them, can I please just go rehab in Dominican yes. Atlantis? Like, <laughs> you know, I- I've heard that swimming with dolphins is actually very good for rotator cuff injuries. People forget. People forget. Um... So, Perez, Kansas City, gets him to a multi-year extension, the richest contract in Kansas City Royals history. Um, what do you make of the deal, John? It's tempting to say that it, it feels like what has what has now been like a, an ongoing run of the Royals essentially uh, celebrating, congratulating, and rewarding uh, a franchise player because on the face of it, giving him uh, – Basically, what am I? What am I? The eighty-some million dollars 
I mean, granted, Perez is coming off a very good season last year, but one, that was obviously the short sample, 60-game season. Two, it was built largely on a batting average on balls in play that he, he's just not going to be able to replicate. You know, Perez hasn't really shown any signs that he is offensively at least anything more than a C-ball, hit-ball type guy. You know, very low walk rates, high strikeout rates. Um, basically just living and dying on the kind of contact he produces and the ability for balls to find holes, which it's not as Perez is a bad hitter. He's just not a he's just not a good hitter, and he's not a consistently good hitter. He grades up pretty much average offensively, which for a catcher is pretty solid. I think the other thing you wonder, though, is, Pretty much every number or every defensive number we've seen says he's a anywhere from a mediocre to just flat out bad framer, and that he's good in pretty much every other aspect of catching, but that he really struggles with that part of it. So, I mean, at least just given that, given his age, given you know that he's not you know he's not a Buster Posey type, um, you know, but like he's not a Buster Posey type with you know a Hall of Fame upside or you know who's you know, like 30% better than the average catcher offensively. It's it's a little curious, but I, I think of it in two ways. One, I think the Royals recognize that there is a real value in providing. And the Royals clearly are a diff, like they're they're going in a different direction. It feels like than everyone else during an off season where you know they very easily and openly could have tanked and signed no one. They instead went out and made some interesting. I don't, want to, I don't know if they're necessarily good additions, but they're interesting additions at the very least. And then on top of that, they give Perez a lot of money when they really didn't have to. Um, and, and I know this is the weird thing about, you know, we, we, we talk a lot, or we, there, there, I guess there's this idea that, you know, we should be celebrating when owners or when teams spend money, and we should be celebrating the idea of, t- of players getting that money. And it, it should, none of this should be mistaken for, a little, for, for anything opposite that. Like, I'm, I'm glad Sally Perez is getting paid. For a while there, he was deeply, deeply underpaid. Uh, obviously, the Royals, and, and that's another thing. The Royals did a, a, a at least a better thing for him there in tearing up his initial uh, very, very team-friendly deal and signing him to a new one a few years ago before this new one now. Um, it, it's very clear that they operate in a different way where they do stuff like, we don't really care that he's a 31-year-old catcher or however old exactly Sal Perez is, who's really not all that special offensively. He's been a part of this team forever. We want him to be a part of this team going forward. Clearly, there's some value there in terms of what he brings to the table beyond just his, his pure playing ability that the Royals really value. I wouldn't be surprised to learn that Perez is, you know, probably regarded as a, as a you know, it, he's one of the few veterans still on that team, and he's probably regarded as something close to a leader on that team. You know, and it's also worth noting, like, how much his, at least up until recently, his durability kind of matters that team because that's a team that, you know, uh, Ned Yost before him, and I'm sure Mike Matheny will continue to do it, will play Perez every single day if possible. So, you know, is, is, a, is it a good deal on the surface? No, it's hard to imagine Perez being worth it, quote-unquote. And it's not as if this Royals team is really going anywhere anytime particularly soon. But on the other hand, it's nice to see a team at least do this. It's good for Perez to get the money. And I understand that there is probably uh, almost certainly a value to him beyond just purely what he can do on the field. And I think the Royals recognize that. And at least also when it comes to stuff like framing, I think I would imagine the general consensus among teams is that robot umps and automated strike zones are coming sooner rather than later. So framing as a skill may be on its way out, at least in terms of something you have to try to quantify and value. So that, that may also be a part of it. I'm not sure that the Royals have inside info or anything. But if nothing else is clear, like I said, this is a team that you know is kind of z- is kind of zagging where everyone else zigged in terms of 
uh, in terms of kind of how to be a rebuilding team, or at least a team that's not a contender right now, is that, no, we're still going to keep a floor, uh, or at least attempt some kind of floor of, you know, probably looks like 75 wins or so, instead of just kind of stripping it all down and just being awful, which I, you can argue whether or not that's the smart thing to do, but I at least commend that the Royals are giving their fans something better, like something worth watching better than what the Orioles and the Pirates and a few of these other teams are going to be doing. Yeah, and I think they're just so interesting for a lot of reasons, a lot of which you laid out here. But also, Bobby Witt Jr., this kind of brings us into this, is that he will be starting out in the minors and he just looks insane in the spring and this dude just looks like a future multi-time All-Star. But... There was a really good piece um, in the SB Nation Kansas City blog that I'm blanking as to what it actually is called. But Royals uh, Review. Yes. Um, but there was a really good piece outlining um, why it's good that the Royals are being very, very careful with Wit because I don't know if you remember, I'd forgotten how highly touted Mondesi was years ago now. I mean, it's been several, several years. Oh, yeah. And he moved up to the top very quickly um, and struggled at the plate, looked lost, and... Now he's a great um, defensive player, but the bat has never fully come around. He's never fully realized his potential, and it just looks like he is a good to okay stopgap guy. He's not really part of your core. He's he's fine, but it you just forget that this was somebody who could have been a star, perhaps, if they had handled him differently. So there is something about, I wonder if this front office is thinking about wit with Mondesi in mind because of just what's happened and where he is as a player now. And they just, they can't really afford to miss or to develop guys like Bobby Witt Jr. Incorrectly. Cause he's just too important for the next five to 10 years of your, your franchise. Sure. And I think part of it too, is that wit has no more than what 30 or 40 games as a professional under his belt. I mean, he was a 2019 draft pick. So he he got all of a chunk of a, a chunk of last season or a chunk of the 2019 season rather after being drafted, and then didn't play any organized or didn't play any minor league baseball at all last year. I, I assume he was at the alternate site and probably got some development work in there. But obviously, that's not nearly the same as playing in the minors. So on top of Wit already probably being a little behind where where the Royals probably want him to be in terms of just professional development. You know, there's there's no fact he's only what twenty years old, mm-hmm. and this Royals team, this Royals team is in no position, I think, this year to do really. Like I said, you look at that team right now, and I, I know we talked about them uh, a couple months ago, I think, but that to me feels like a team somewhere in the seventies in the win total. You know, maybe high seventies if you get lucky. That's not really a team I feel like where you push your top prospect at age twenty with all of a half season's worth of minor league baseball experience, you know, j- just to get, you know, to turn 77 wins into 78. That, that doesn't really strike me as much as making much sense. And I at least believe the Royals that I don't think this is some kind of, uh, I don't think this is some kind of service manipulation thing. They've shown themselves to be one of the teams like the Padres and like the Mets that have been um, better about that than other teams have. Obviously the Padres with Fernando Tatis, the Mets with Pete Alonso, they just, you know, they, they figured if this guy can help us now, we're going to jump him now because we're close enough to contention that this makes sense. And I don't see the Royals being in that spot, so I can completely understand. And like you said, I, I'm sure that they want to make sure Wit is as developed as possible before they expose him to the majors. Because like I said, like, there's no real reason to do it now. There's no reason to rush that. You know, th- this Royals team is not a contender. Um, I think they'll be probably 
I don't know if they'll be better than people expected. I think the the I, I think Ben Clemens made this prediction on Fangraphs, and I tend to agree with him. I think there's a good chance we see Kansas City finish ahead of Cleveland in the AL Central, but that still only amounts to at best like something in the high 70s, win total wise, maybe 500. So you know why why rush the kid if if that's if that's kind of your ceiling? You know, there's to me that just strikes me as let him get his reps that he missed out on last year, and then we, you know we're talking if he looks good in 2021. Then we're talking opening day 2022. Bobby Witt's your your starter somewhere. And I think that's also part of it is I think the Royals want to get a better look at him at other positions as they try to figure out, okay, not only where is he best, but where does he have the most long-term value for us? Is it center field? Is it shortstop? Is it second base? Is it, you know, it, it looks like it's probably one of those three, but it's a matter of, okay, which one of those three makes the most sense for both us and for Witt? Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. The wait is finally over. Notfest Roadshow is back. October 13th, Jiffy Lube Live, featuring Slipknot, with Kill Switch Engage, Fever 333, and Code Orange. Tickets on sale now at LiveNation.com, part of the Metris Warehouse Concert Series. Absolutely. Um, Carlos Carrasco is officially a New York Mets pitcher because he uh, is hurt. Ouch. Just, they can't catch a break here because Carrasco I was excited to see him in New York this year um torn hamstring seems bad John like it, it just even being optimistic about how long it's going to take for him to come back a torn hamstring this is this is bad right as uh, as the current Phillies manager would say it's not what you want no and on top of that it's not just the torn hamstring but also the fact that before Carrasco got hurt, he was already dealing with some arm stuff that had slowed him down in spring training and prevented him from building up. So he, he I don't think he even got into a single Grapefruit League start. So you're, with Carrasco, you're talking not just whatever time he needs to rehab this injury, you know, have it heal, get back to it. He also needs to build up arm strength. So I think realistically, we're probably not seeing him until the earliest June. And if there are any setbacks, there's a decent chance he's out till the All-Star break. And the nice thing from the Mets is, I know we, we talked about this, was it last week we did the Mets or the week before? Wait, say that one more time. Was it last week we did the Mets or the week before? Last week. Last week, okay. And, and I think we, when we did, we talked about the fact that for once they seem to have uh, pitching depth, especially starting rotation depth, that they've never really bothered having in, the la- in, the, in years previous. But already you're seeing that that depth is being tested, and there's not really a whole much left beyond that. Um, you know, with with the rotation that now has to have David Peterson and uh, the boy Joey Luke's in it, mm-hmm. you know, because they're also still waiting on Noah Syndergaard to get healthy, rehabbing from Tommy John. There's not really anything left. And granted, I'd much rather have David Peterson and Joey Luke's as my four and five than the Mets of years previous, where they've had to slot in guys like Walker Lockett or you know other other triple a dudes who are just very clearly filler and absolutely not capable of of being you know even average major league starters but you, you the Mets rotation is <clears throat> excuse me now in a position to me where it's 
we can't afford any more injuries. And not only can we afford any more injuries, but also we need one of Syndergaard or Carrasco, and ideally both, but definitely one of them to suffer no setbacks in their recovery at this point. Because we, like, asking that that quintet as currently constructed, especially given that, you know, Marcus Stroman's never been the healthiest guy, or at least has had some durability issues, and is also coming off a season where he didn't pitch. And, um, and dealing with, too, the fact that, you know, Peterson and Lucchese are not guys you can really count on to throw a lot of innings. You know, it, it, it's not quite the Jacob deGrom or Buss situation that, that previous Mets rotations have been, but it's certainly in a position now where it's like you need one of these guys back sooner rather than later because every single start, every single game is so critical in the NL East. Um, it's tough. It's really tough for the Mets. It's, it's not a killer by any stretch of the imagination, but it's definitely an injury that becomes way, way worse if there's a setback with Carrasco, obviously, but also if there's a setback with Syndergaard or, or someone else gets hurt, then the Mets are really, really in trouble. Yeah. Especially because, and, and just on top of that too, I think the last really, I think, useful free agent starting pitcher was left is Jake Odorizzi and the Astros already signed him. Yep. You know, if the Mets lose anyone from here on out, are, are they taking a ride with Rick Porcello? Yeah, that's it. You're looking at Cole Hamels, you're looking at Rick Porcello, you're looking at older guys who really are just barely scraping league average at this point. And, yeah, that's not a place you want to be if you're the Mets. You know, second week of April and you're already, like, hoping to get Cole Hamels or Rick Porcello stretched out in time. Should Yankees fans be worried about Miguel Andor being being away for a while? No, because I, I don't think he was going to really play a role for this team anyway. I mean, where you look at it, where was where was he going to play realistically? I mean, um, third base, which was where he was flying and where he was defensively a butcher, is locked up with Gio Urshela. Yeah, I know they were trying him out. They were you know giving him spots in the outfield to see if they could kind of make him into a I think a super utility would be the idea. But Aaron Judge is the locked in starter and right. Brett Gardner and Clint Frazier are going to handle left. Aaron Hicks is in center. You know, there's no room really at DH because that's going to be a rotation between Giancarlo Stanton and Luke Voigt and whoever, uh, Jay Bruce or Mike Ford wins a bench spot. And I think that's the other thing is that, you know, for as much as Andujar is probably a better hitter than either Mike Ford or at this stage in his career, Jay Bruce, Mm -hmm. they fit more neatly into this roster than a guy who really defensively struggles everywhere, is not a first baseman, as far as I know. I mean, I don't believe Andahar really has any real first base experience, unlike um, definitely Ford and, and, and Bruce as well, and really just didn't look right in his life. I mean, I, I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Andahar just is, at this point, just, I mean, I, don't, I think it would probably be selling low to a certain extent, but I just don't really see where he fits on this team going forward, unless something happens excuse me, unless something happens to Urshela or, you know, their injuries in, you know, other parts of the lineup to force pieces to be moved around. I, you know, I, I think that the, what was always probably going to happen is he was going to start the season in the minors. Anyway, what I actually would have been interested in is now that Justin Wilson seems to be hurt on top of Zach Britton already being hurt. Um, I'm curious if the Yankees are going to try to find any left-handed relief, and if so, if Andahar can maybe be a part of that. That's probably selling very low on him just to trade him for a left-handed reliever, and I don't think that's actually going to happen. But I do think his role, more likely than not at this point, beyond just being minor league depth, is probably a trade piece for whatever the Yankees end up needing or you know, whatever they end up needing over the course of the season. Because there just doesn't really seem like there's a place for him going forward on this team because it just seems like they kind of gave up on him defensively at third base, which understandable. And there's nowhere really else he fits. So, I mean, I think the injury just made what would have been a 
a likely decision, just academic instead. Yeah. Well, I would not hate the Braves taking a flyer on somebody like Anduar. I don't know. I'm just, uh, I, but then again, I'm all in on the Jason Kipnis, uh, revitalization revitalization tour in Atlanta this spring. So I'm I mean I think Andahar I think Andahar just makes more sense as a kind of D eight almost like a almost like a younger Jose Martinez at this point. Mm. Just a, a bat first guy who doesn't really play any position particularly well. Which is obviously makes it tough because that means the National League's not really a good home for him. No. And at most American League teams year. Yeah, and most American League teams aren't looking to invest in a guy who is pretty much a, uh, a DH first, you know, when they are, when most teams already have enough guys, they can just comfortably slot into that rotation. You know, it's, it, those guys tend to create, I feel like more roster log jams than anyone else, because obviously that since they can only play, since they're only realistically DH and maybe you can park them in, in at first base or in the corner outfield spots and hope for the best, you know, you, you're pretty limited in what you can do to the point where it's like, you have to be a JD Martinez level hitter to make that work. And, and obviously is not that. Or at least it's not that consistently. I think there's probably the potential for that, but you know that that's all we've really seen is is a little bit of his potential. You know, in that rookie season of his. Absolutely. Um, well, let's get into our 2021 Washington Nationals preview, John. Um, I think I'm higher on the Nationals than you are at this point. Um, I think there's a lot of boomer bust potential with them. We shall see. I think there's a lot of top-end talent. I like their top three in their rotation. I like a lot of their, their lineup for the most part. Uh, makes a lot of sense to me. We'll get into center field where I'm not a big Victor Robles guy, but um, an off-season letter grade for what the Nationals did in response to last year and the season from hell kind of for them um, is what, John? I'd say a BB minus, I feel um, I think you're right that you're probably higher on them than I am. And I think you're right that there's a lot of boomer bust potential because, you know, they have, you know, you look at their top end talent, Scherzer, Strasburg, Soto, Turner, Corbin. Um, I, I guess you can toss Brad hand into that pile. Um, Josh Bell on tools, at least I mean, on tools, at least Josh Bell and Victor Robles probably belong there too. But there's also a lot of, there's, there are a lot of guys in the lineup in that lineup in that rotation and that bullpen. And you're like, is this, is this going to work? You know, where you're, you know, second base right now is Starling Castro. That's that's a pretty low floor. Third base is Carter Kaiboom, and I really don't think anyone knows what they're going to get out of that. He's looked really bad this spring. He's never shown any consistent ability to make contact at the major league level. I think third base, as it, is, as it seems to be for a lot of contenders, third base is a real issue for the Nationals right now. Um, I think, you know, the question of what Robles are they going to get? Are they going to get the guy from two years ago who was a speed demon? Or are they going to get the guy from last year? who bulked up and tried to hit for power and instead just was terrible at everything. Um, you know, what's, what's the situation going to be in the back of the rotation? I, you know, I, I'm curious as to why, uh, considering the back of the rotation has been such a persistent problem for this team, I'm curious as to why they decided John Lester was the solution to all of this, coming off mm. a bad 2020, very clearly on the decline, you know, getting older. I mean, Granted, he didn't cost much, but I think that's obviously the through line connecting all of Washington's major moves this offseason between Bell and Lester and Kyle Schwarber and, and, and Han. None of those guys cost particularly much, and I believe they're all on one-year deals. So it which feels to me like the most Nationals offseason. It's here's a bunch of one-year deals to some flawed yet intriguing players who, if they hit their top potential, are going to be, you know, going to be stars, and if they don't, are going to be just black holes wherever they end up. 
because, you know, we've seen what a bad job, we've seen what a good Josh Bell looks like, and we've seen what a bad Josh Bell looks like, and a bad Josh Bell is pretty much unplayable. Likewise, we've seen what a good Kyle Schwarber could do, but a bad Kyle Schwarber is just killing you defensively and at the plate. You know, you're just running into cheap home runs every now and then. A bad John Lester is four runs in five innings. You know, a bad, I guess a bad brand hand. We've, we've seen that too, but I, I think I, I, I'm higher on hand than any of those other things. Regardless, Nationals to me kind of feel like the Angels East at this point, or at least a kind of version of the Angels East where they have all this all-star talent. And, you know, you have, you can easily make comparable, you know, That's Mike Trout equals Juan Soto, like Trey Turner equals Anthony Rendon. It's not, it's obviously not directly equal, but you know, Max Scherzer slash Steven Strasburg equals Shohei Otani. Like I said, it's, it's not a good direct one-to-one, but it's that same kind of vibe of a very top-heavy stars and scrubs roster where ownership doesn't really want to seem to spend the money necessary to kind of keep the window open. Because I think that, that when I look at this Nationals team, that's what I feel is like, look, the farm system, and I know we're going to talk about that in a bit, the farm system is bad. It's probably the worst in baseball. It's really thin. It does not have any impact players on the way up anytime soon. Um, there's no real help coming from there at the moment. Beyond Soto and Turner, most of these, most of this team's major guys, or at least most most important guys, are older on the older side. I believe, you know, Scherzer obviously, or Strasburg, Scherzer, Corbin are all over thirty, hands over thirty. You know, even guys like Bell and Schwarber are still like you know closer to thirty than they are obviously to, to someone like Soto. But you know, the youth movement is really Soto, and to a lesser extent Turner, and if he ever gets his head on right, Kaiboom. And I think the biggest thing hanging over this team is that this is Scherzer's last year under contract. He's 37. I can't imagine he's going to get another big long-term deal after this. You know, I, I don't know what his plans are after the season. I don't know what the Nationals' plans are for him going forward. But it does have that feel of, like, this is, a, this is the last guaranteed year you get with Max Scherzer. You know, why not, you know, take – especially because these – these problem spots have been problems. You know what they are. It's not like this is like, oh, but if things go wrong, it's like, no, like if things go right, third base and second base might be adequate mm-hmm. or, or the back of the bullpen might be adequate or the back of the rotation might be adequate. I actually like their bullpen more than anything else. That concerns not more me. Than anything they got to start getting like, rid of some like pieces. You got to get like, we, we got to yeah, get Hudson it, out of there. We got to, we, we know how they win world series and it's with bad bullpens. You got to get, well, those guys I, I out like, of there. I like, I like, Brad, I like Brad hand. I like what, Tanner Rainey offers if he can stay healthy. I think they have some intriguing arms there that at least, you know, have some upside. Uh, I'm, I'm not obviously not super sold on Hudson, but you know he's 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 going to be probably a seventh inning guy at this point anyway. Yeah. But regardless, it does just feel like I know they got their championship, you know, and I know that there's not necessarily that same kind of push there that there would be for other teams like the Angels who are, who are in a different position. But it does just feel like instead of kind of doing whatever they can to prop this window open and to kind of, you know, get the most out of what is what is probably going to be Scherzer's last year in, in, in D.C., they just kind of went for the cheaper kind of mid-tier solution that, like we like I said, like, you know, if they work, they work. And if they don't work, boy, are they not going to work. And that, that to me feels like the most Angels aspect of all, because I think what we saw a lot from the Angels over the last few years was here's a guy who – has a pretty high ceiling, but a really low floor if things don't work out. You know, there's no in-between here. And the Nationals really have that feel of this is either going to be, like I said, boomer bust. It's either going to be a good team in the NL East fight to the end, 
or this is a team that's looking at a really kind of like blah, eight, 500 third place finish, if not worse, depending on how injuries play out. Because that's, Kaibum not having that's any trade thing. value really hurts them. That was something I'd written down where it's just like, if this dude had any real trade capital, where you see what the what it costs to get somebody like Nolan Arenado, like that is the kind of move I think they needed to do. It's just like, Kaibum, I wish there was still more mystique with him, but he's kind of in that Austin Riley zone now where it's like, mm, boomer bust, I don't yeah, know. Kaibum, Kaibum yeah, is, the problem with Kaibum is he's, he's showing all the, all the signs of, of, of just being a bust. Yes. And at this point, if you move him, you're selling low because... Like he's said, not going to get you Chris Bryan anymore. Him. Those days are gone. No, and anyone, anyone who's buying him is buying him purely on potential. And to be fair, I don't, even with the Cubs having, given, having gotten very little, relatively speaking, for you, Darvish... I don't know if the Nationals farm system has enough to get any impact player, which is, again, why I was surprised that they weren't more active in free agency because money is just about their only tool at this point. You know, they don't have the prospect pieces to move for, you know, not, obviously not that they were going to, but like not for like a Blake Snell or for a Hugh Darvish or, you know, for a Chris Bryant or for anyone else, really. Um, you know, the one trade they made was, and you could see like what they got in return was Josh Bell, you know, a flawed yet, possibly productive hitter but one who is coming off a really bad season um it, it, it that's what's kind of curious to me is that there is and i understand it's the nationals like they never even when they do spend money they don't spend money you know max scherzer's last year under contract is this year but he's going to be getting paid probably till 2035 or whatever thanks to all the deferrals that are built into that that's how the nationals are it's deferrals 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 but it still strikes me as odd that free agency really seemed like their one and only way to improve this roster, not just improve it, but also like solidify it in a way that made this team feel more stable. And instead they took a lot of one year gambles on some shaky kind of like, I mean, I, I, I just, that's the thing. I don't know how you come out of an off season where your only real starting pitching addition is John Lester and feel terribly good about what that says. You know, I mean, this isn't a team that had five really good starters set and was like, Oh, let's just add John Lester just as veteran insurance. No, this is a team relying on John Lester to make 30 starts next year because the depth beyond him is really bad. You know, you're talking about guys like Eric Fetty, or you're talking about, you know, maybe having to rush, not even rush, because there's no, there's no realistic world in which a guy like Jackson Rutledge or, or Cade Cavalli is ready to contribute as a major league starter yet. You know, that's, that's just plain silly. Like, what? I think the Nationals, as much as any team, like, obviously, you know, you lose starting pitchers, you're in trouble, but, like, they really don't have any depth to work with. And it just confuses me that given that, that they end up with a guy like Lester, who is, yeah, durable, relatively speaking, but you're not getting very many quality innings out of him anymore. That that sponge is just about squeezed out. So how do you think it ultimately unfolds for Washington this spring? I think we're... Uh, this spring or this season? I guess this season. Well, I was just like, when they get started. How do you think this unfolds? Yeah, them? yeah. Like I said, I, I think this feels like a 500 team to me. I, I Which feel seems like, dumb to me. Is, like, you cannot do 500 with so much just wrapping up after this year. You either but go then, all in but the, or you tear is, it all down. But this is why I brought up the Angels, right? This team doesn't seem to make sense as a 500 club, but then you look at the Angels like, well, that's basically what they've been with Trout in the fold, and he's like, he's better than, well, we, we're going to have to have, and this is maybe a topic for something separate slash when the season gets going and he starts playing again, but we're going to have to have a, a capital C conversation about Juan Soto soon because boy, oh boy, like we are, we are talking about the next trout at this point. Um, obviously not, not the same in terms of, in terms of defensive base running, but as a hitter. Cunha Jr., but continue on. John. Okay. Well, 
I think over on the on the whole, in terms of the entire package, you want to talk about the next trout, it's probably Tatis or Acuna. But you want to talk about the best under twenty five hitter in baseball, it's it's Juan Soto. He's putting up Ted Williams level numbers at his age. That it's ridiculous what he's doing. But I, I just feel like this is a team where and, and something we didn't something I didn't even mention that that's kind of I think gone uh, that's really worth noting about this team. Defensively, they're terrible. Um, Robles can be a good defender and center, and I choose to believe that. I, I read something on um, the Athletic from the Nationals beat writer Maria Guardado, who noted that you know as I said before, Robles bulked up ahead of last year, and I think he's he's you know that didn't work, so he's slimmed back down. And I think we should probably see a better season out of him, especially defensively. But beyond him and Trey Turner, and I really feels like it like that. That's those are their good defenders. The rest of that infield's not good. The rest of that outfield's not good. Soto is not a good defender. Um, uh, Schwarber is not a good defender. Josh Bell is not a good defender. Like this is a team that is, I think, going to struggle defensively too. And on the one hand, you don't mind that as much with guys like Scherzer and Strasburg because they're striking out everyone anyway. Balls and play are not really what they're trying to do in the first place. But with a guy like Lester on the mound or Joe Ross or on those days Corbin can't get a slider over, you're not looking too great if a lot of balls are coming in play with that particular defense. So I, this team, even beyond the Angels, this team kind of has a, a kind of last five years of the Mets vibe to it. Not Obviously not with the incompetence and the, the circus atmosphere and the chaos, but just in terms of, again, that stars and scrubs approach where if things go wrong, this team could collapse in an absolute hurry. And I think you saw that. You obviously saw that last year, and you saw that in the first half of their championship year um, before everything kind of, before they kind of pulled it all back together. But I don't know. I, I just don't feel particularly high on this Nationals team. I think I like them individually more than as a, as a roster. They don't really seem to be a very coherently built roster. And I think – I don't think they have the capacity. I think they, a lot of things need to break right for them to challenge the Braves and the, and the Mets. I think more realistically we're looking at a third-place finish, and maybe they're floating around the back edge of the NL wildcard conversation. But I don't know. I, I just don't see it unless – Unless a lot of things work out, and I think unless they pull off a big trade at some point to improve what are probably going to be persistent problem spots on the roster, either either third base, either second base, or back of the rotation, depending. All right. John, what can we check out from you this week at Fangraphs? Uh, I got nothing going, but we are in the middle of our positional power rankings. Uh, each position in baseball going 1 through 30 for each team, or for all the teams going first to worst. Uh, you'll be happy to know. You'll be happy to know the Atlanta Braves checked in at number one at first base for very, very obvious reasons, and will probably be pretty high up in the. Where, where's is, is Acuna is a right fielder, right? Yeah, they're probably pretty high up in the right field rankings as well. well it I also just depends on who wins the center fielder job this spring. So Acuna's spot is actually going to be determined based on whether or not Christian Pache okay. uh, is the everyday starter. Oh. Regardless, I uh, will also. I mean, once shortstops are out too, I you know, spoiler alert: Dansby Swanson, the clear number one shortstop in baseball. So we'll have, we'll have that in there too. <laughs> uh, Charlie Culberson, the number one Charlie Culberson in baseball. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is he is he even still on the? He's not on he's the, not on the anymore, team anymore. No, no. In That's spirit, shame. In I, spirit. I, I mean, in spirit, I also like that um, the Dansby Swanson clone role has gone from Charlie Culberson to Ian Anderson. There always needs to be at least one guy on the team who looks like Dancy Swanson. I think that's a I fair believe. 
I believe that's a, a local law in Atlanta. But it is. Yeah, check out check out the positional power rankings. And man, next week next week is opening day. How crazy is that? That is crazy, John. We got baseball next week. Next Thursday, baseball. Next real live in, actually matters baseball. I'm excited. All right, John. Well, thank you as always for the time, my friend, and uh, we'll be back next week. Sounds good, dude. All right, we're back on the Chase House Podcast, and I am now joined by Ross Jackson, host of Locked on Saints. He's just saints all over the place, saints everywhere. I'm already regretting having Ross on just to talk more about the saints and how they are able to maneuver the cap and how they are able to stay atop the NFC South, how they're able to outside of the, obviously the bucks this year and what they did, but over the last several years and just what they've done um, to torment my Atlanta Falcons fandom. Um, Ross, good afternoon. How are you? Hey, Chase, absolutely. Uh, glad to be here with you. Uh, doing very well. Hoping the same for you. And uh, you know, look, I, I promise you, uh, I'm coming with no hate. I'm coming okay. with nothing, nothing at all uh, against uh, you know the Atlanta Falcons faithful or anything like that. I'm just happy to sit here and, and be able to chop it up with you for a little bit. All right, man. Well, I want to ask you. Um, Terry Fonnot has not really had an opportunity to do all that much yet. We'll see what he does in the draft, and I think the Falcons will do a lot more there. I mean, he restructured mm-hmm. Dante Fowler's contract. He did the obvious thing, bringing back Koo. It's just our next 10-year starter at kicker. Um, mm-hmm. Alex Mack is gone. That was foreseeable. Um, Matt Ryan restructured his contract, which was kind of a surprise. He signed Eric Harris um, because uh, Ricardo Allen and Keanu Neal are both gone. DeMonte Casey is gone. So it's more about who the Falcons have let go versus who the Falcons have signed. Um, what can you tell me and Falcons listeners what Terry Fontenot brought to New Orleans over the last decade plus and why the Falcons faithful should um, be excited about him? Yeah, you know, it, it's actually kind of interesting watching him uh, in, in his new digs over there because the thing that's been really something that has really always stood out about, about him has been his ability in player retention. Um, he's been a big part of the Saints being able to keep the band together and, you know, retaining draft classes, bringing in outside free agents and retaining in-house free agents. So I don't know if it maybe was just a little bit more of a, with the changing of the guard at the head coaching position, coinciding with the changing of the guard at the GM position, that so many players ended up leaving or, or, or not being retained by the Atlanta Falcons, at least up to this point, if maybe that changing the guard is happening. And so they're sort of rebuilding or retooling, let me say more appropriately, uh, the roster into their vision. And then after that, the player retention will kick in. I, I think that's something that has always been very um, very much valued by the New Orleans Saints, by the organization, by the fan base as well, who knew him well. They always really, really appreciated his ability to be able to keep guys in, have them take team-friendly deals, um, work on attracting outside free agents. I mean, he was the guy responsible for bringing in folks like Demario Davis, guys like uh, Jameis Winston. He was a big proponent in in, in recruiting and getting to New Orleans, uh, Emmanuel Sanders. And so, you know, a lot of that has been really his. He was the director of pro personnel or assistant general manager, rather, pro personnel for the Saints. So that was really his focus in New Orleans. Interesting. Um, now that Drew Brees is gone, um, I really hate to see it. You, you just hate to see it. Yeah. Um, Drew Brees yeah. hanging it up in New Orleans. Um, Jameis Winston is back. Taysom Hill is back. Um, 
how much is real as to whether or not Taysom Hill has a real shot at being the every down quarterback under center for the Saints this fall? Or do you think we're going to see some like mid 2000s Chris Leak and Tim Tebow stuff? Um, <laughs> like what what are we going to get out of the New Orleans Saints under center this fall? My my expectation is, uh, I guess, something that would be in the middle of those two things. Hmm. Uh, but my expectation is very much that Jameis Winston will be the starting quarterback and will be sort of the every-down guy. And then Taysom would sort of come in, uh, essentially what he did, have the same role or a similar role as he did with uh, Drew Brees under center. The, the difference might be that you'll see him potentially take fewer snaps in a shot play, which is what you saw oftentimes because Drew Brees mm. toward the end of his career didn't have the arm to get the ball downfield um, on a consistent basis. He was able to do it every now and then, but it wasn't a consistent part of his game, and it was always about just making the right choices as opposed to taking risk. So when they wanted to take those risks, you would put Taysom Hill in and Taysom would either be able to take a shot down the field or he would run, right, either one of those types of situations. And so now I think maybe you'll see a little bit more variety in terms of what they're able to do with Taysom Hill just simply because it's not going to be sort of tipping off a defense that, oh, this is either a shot play or depending upon, like, if the fullback goes in motion out of the backfield before the play, before the snap, we know which direction he's running. And so I think that with those pieces there, I believe that Jameis Winston, who will be in a legitimate quarterback competition for the starting quarterback position uh, against Taysom Hill, but I believe that he will win that position. And then you'll still see Taysom Hill come in and play sort of that offensive weapon role that you've seen from him a lot, um, but also potentially still take some snaps every now and then at the quarterback position. Do you think Sean Payton, Carmichael, Loomis, Ireland, they see Jameis as a potential long-term answer at quarterback, or is this a stopgap kind of situation that maybe um, akin to uh, New England after they lost Brady of just like, we'll, we'll try out Cam and then we like what he provides. We like the, the, just the chance of him keeping things afloat and keeping things moving until we find the next guy. Mm -hmm. Or do you think they actually believe that Jameis can do the same kind of veteran, um, magic that, uh, the saints did with breeze where like he was the former number one overall pick. He has shown flashes and in our system, we can fix the stuff that plagued him in Tampa or, is the, the the former what do you what do you think is real yeah. there yeah I, I think that for all intents and purposes there's a belief that Jameis Winston can come in revitalize his career and keep the Saints competitive for you know the future right um that's you know it, it it's like it's kind of like hiring when you have a job opening right you're, you're kind of in a situation where you're like I need this first person to walk through the door to just solve all my problems to be the perfect candidate and so I think that there's a reality in which the Saints would very much appreciate uh, an opportunity that Jameis Winston shows up he wins the starting job he goes out there and has an incredible 2021 season that he signs long term with the Saints starting in 2022 and he becomes their quarterback of the future However, I also know that this is a team that always, always makes sure that it has its contingency plans in place and that it always has a clear vision, even when the original vision doesn't work out. So there's always going to be a plan 1B, 1C, 1B, to where if this doesn't work out, where do they go next? So they'll be prepared for things not to go as smoothly as they would hope. But I think that the intention here is to put all of their hope, all, all of their belief into backing up Jameis Winston if he wins the starting position and treating him as if, yes, you are going to be the guy moving forward as long as you continue to prove it here over that 2021 season. Interesting. Um, if you had to explain to somebody who is a casual NFL connoisseur how New Orleans is able to navigate their, their cap 
issues year over year. Mm-hmm. How would you do it? I would sort of explain to them that um, it's like having a credit card with a $198 million credit line on mm. it. Uh, having a huge credit limit because that's basically what the Saints do. They'll they'll sign these these free agents. They will preemptively create or or draft players, but they will preemptively create void years in contracts for newly signed free agents that they can restructure into in the future. And so there's always sort of a little bit of you know taking out or or refinancing these players at a certain point and then pushing the money down the road because then the next season, if they're in trouble, then they push more money down the road. And then the next season, they'll just push more money down the road and they'll be able to, they can continue to do that, especially as like the new $113 billion TV deal is signed and then the salary cap is expected to begin to see that impact in 2023 and really swell in 2024 with these things. That's sort of the way that I, I look at it and the way that I try to explain it to folks is that, yes, they'll just continue to restructure these contracts and push the money down the road because the fact of the matter is that as of right now the road doesn't end there's not really a point at which anybody is going to make them pay up or anything like that and so as long as they just like the new england patriots just like the tampa bay buccaneers have been doing this season just like the pittsburgh steelers have always done as well we'll just continue to restructure push manage and then continue to sort of rinse wash and repeat as they go through and try to remain competitive by with a focus on keeping the band together and keeping the the players that they either have that are homegrown or that they brought in and have really fit into the system. What do you think uh, the draft strategy is uh, this spring for New Orleans? Well, it depends on how active they get in free agency here, but if they were to take this roster into, uh, into the draft, like let's say the draft were tomorrow, I would expect them to really lean in on defense, which is funny to say because this is a Sean Payton led team and Sean Payton loves his offense but they have enough pieces over on the offensive side to keep them afloat if they can grab a couple of additional uh, a couple of additional weapons at the wide receiver position maybe even at the tight end position and maybe invest in the offensive line. The Saints uncharacteristically going into this draft with eight different selections. Now three of them are in the final two rounds but still having eight different selections, three of which that are top 100, another one that's just outside at 105, 106. Because of that, I think that you'll see them lean off, excuse me, defense early if they were to take this roster in because they have some major holes to fill at all three levels of the defense on the defensive line, losing three of their top snap count getters, if you will, um, on that, on that line and in that unit. And then they also lost Quan Alexander and Alex Anzalone at the second level. And then they cut Janoris Jenkins, which leaves the whole opposite Marshall Lattimore at the cornerback position. So those are very important positions that need to be addressed. Um, last thing we'll wrap up here. Do you think, mm-hmm. Saints fans should look at this group without Drew Brees and with the questions um, at certain spots um, on this roster heading into the draft and free agency, wrapping up here with uh, the bargain bin hunting at the at the point uh, where we're at. Mm-hmm. Um, are they still contenders? Like, obviously, the Bucks just won the championship. Brady's back for at least another right. year or two. Um, with Jameis, with Taysom, without Breeze, with this Sean Payton coaching staff, do you think that they should still be considered or they should still have the expectation that this team can reach the Super Bowl if everything goes right this year and that they're contenders? Because you, you said competitive uh, when describing um, Jameis mm-hmm. in this group. There's a difference between competitive and um, contending. And Absolutely. I'm curious, what, what do you think is real there and how do you think fans should view this uh, Saints uh, current uh, regime? Yeah, I certainly expect the reality for Saints fans in this current team that they're taking in 2021 to be a team that maybe doesn't have the Super Bowl expectations, but still has expectations to reach the playoffs. 
still has expectations to be a potential double-digit win team, even if it is just 10 out of the, the what we expect to be 17 games over that season. I think that the expectations are still there for them, but the expectations might be a little bit more kind of dialed back from the Super Bowl expectations that we've seen over the last four years, more specifically over the, the, the previous three years. And so I think with that, uh, I, I would expect to see maybe – a little bit of a, of a relaxed nature in terms of what the expectations are at the Super Bowl contender level. The fact of the matter is that out of all four teams in the NFC South, the only ones that feel like a sure thing right now are the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because they're the most consistent going from 2021, or excuse me, 2020 into 2021. Falcons are undergoing some big changes at some major spots with head coach as well as, um, as, well as general manager. That always leads to some questions. The Saints are going to have field a new signal caller uh, for the first time in 15 seasons. That, of course, has question marks. Carolina Panthers could be heading into a situation where they're looking at a new starting quarterback as well, depending upon what they end up doing with Teddy Bridgewater second-year head coach, second-year offensive coordinator. So a lot of different question marks all around the NFC South, and the Saints are not immune of that at all. And so I think that them contending for the NFC South for a fifth year in a row feels like maybe the highest expectation you can have at the moment, but them being a wild-card playoff team feels still right now at this point like a reasonable expectation, assuming that all goes well as they move ahead at the new signal caller at the quarterback position. All right, Ross, what can we check out from you across the Internet this week? Yeah, absolutely. So um, easy, easiest way to follow me is to uh, follow me on Twitter at Ross Jackson Nola, N-O-L-A. Uh, you can catch the Locked on Saints podcast every Monday through Friday. Um, that is wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll also shout out my guy, uh, Aaron Freeman, who hosts Locked on Falcons as well. He does great Been on the podcast. Good, good guy. Yeah, absolutely. He's awesome. He's an awesome guy. And, uh, and of course, you can catch all the writing at the SB Nation site, which covers the New Orleans Saints, CanalStreetChronicles.com as well. All right. Well, go do that and keep up the great work, my friend. And uh, we'll have to check back in again soon. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much. A pleasure to uh, speak with you and uh, take care and stay safe. All right. All right. We're back on the Chase Sons podcast. And I'm now joined by Espo, host of the Sun Solar Panel podcast. Espo, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Oh, it's, it's good to be here with you, and it's nice that uh, people with national shows now uh, recognize that the Suns actually exist. It's been a while. so. Well, it's been some time. It uh, It's weird that I just um, – I got used to the Suns just being bad, and um, they, it was just they were out of my consciousness for a decade, and the playoff drought and everything, and uh, now things are turning, and they're closing in on the Jazz for the top spot in the West right now. Um, it's they're an exciting team, and I really have enjoyed watching them this year. And they're a, not a league pass favorite, but they are a team that I need to watch. And they're just a they're just a really smartly, perfectly built mixture of vets and young guys. I don't know they, that team. When I look at it, and I look at their how they divvy up their usage and going through cleaning glass stuff with them, I'm like everything about the Phoenix Suns makes sense to me. Um, is that a fair way to characterize the Suns right now? Yeah, they're they're a perfect reflection of their leadership in James Jones, Monty Williams, and and on the court, Chris Paul. They're not flashy necessarily. Uh, they're a group that is going to come out and, and do the things necessary to win. But like you said, I don't think they're going to be anybody's 
league pass favorite, which is which is weird because in the past when the Suns were good, it was very flashy. It was seven yeah. seconds or less. It was run and gun. It was the Barkley era, which was a, a faster paced team than most in the time in the 90s. And the Suns are one of the this year's iteration is one of the slowest paced teams in the league. But somehow it is still beautiful basketball. I think some Suns fans have had to kind of adjust to it because they even when they were bad, they tried to play uh, at a at a breakneck breakneck pace. And that's just not the case now. But uh, it's it is, like I said, a reflection of the guy putting together this team and James Jones and knowing what it takes to win a championship and having been that grinded out kind of guy in, in his career, just the show up and do what it takes to win very much. That's Monty Williams mindset, uh, especially since he's come to the Suns after all the tragedies he's experienced in his own life. He has a very interesting and calming perspective. And then this is just the way, cp3 teams play as well so it it is is a a microcosm of everything here and you're not alone in them not necessarily being a league pass favorite yeah and i guess this all comes down to it just being a uh (laughs) the chris paul effect um the slower pace the change and the way they play and um i i find it interesting but did you see this coming did you see them breaking through because i think a lot of um nba writers and smart nba people pegged the Suns as a lower-end playoff team this year. No one uh, had them like, oh, this team's not on the rise, especially after acquiring Paul and just with this rotation. But they were like, no, they, they should be a playoff team for sure in the West, just in the bottom half. But they're in the top half, and it looks like they're in good shape to finish out in the top four. Um, did you see this coming this year, honestly? Yeah, I, I wish I could sit here and tell you, yeah, I've got the tape. I said they were going to be one or two in the West, and and they were going to be a championship favorite. But the the honest truth is, I was I was where everybody else was. I thought six to eight seed. Uh, you know, maybe they push into that five area if uh, if Chris Paul has has a a massive massive impact. I don't think anybody saw this coming, and in part because they didn't see what's going on in the West as a whole. Nobody thought Anthony Davis would be injured for a long period of time. Obviously now LeBron, uh, even the Clippers have just not been what people expected. So I think it's as much other teams in the West not living up to expectations as it is also the Suns exceeding set expectations. But no, I don't think anybody doubted that this team would be fundamentally sound based on the additions of Chris Paul, Jay Crowder, Langston Galloway, each one more, you saw where James Jones was trying to go in, in putting this together. But to say, I know probably one person, and we're talking hardcore Suns fan, who's been pounding the table since uh, since they acquired Chris Paul, that they'd be a one seed. Outside of that, I don't think anybody else uh, saw this coming. If you had to, like you're at a bar, sports bar, Post-COVID, we're all back to normal. And someone asks you how Chris Paul changed things from this year to last year um, for this Phoenix Suns team. How would you how would you tell this casual NBA observer what, uh, what Chris Paul has meant for the Suns this year? Well, I think I'd say they went from a, a target point guard to a Nordstrom's point guard. Okay. That 
if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Look, uh, three years ago, the Suns were had a dollar, a dollar store point guards. I mean, they were they were rocking a, a guard line, a point guard lineup that uh, would make some G League teams cringe. It was that that bad. Last year, they take the step up to Ricky Rubio. Ricky has, you know, what what some would call a, a career year, and what he was able to do in Phoenix, and you saw a massive improvement from. Uh, you know, the year before to with Ricky. Now, what Chris Paul has been able to do is completely solidify that position and bring uh, years of experience at the highest level to that spot. And it was instant respect from his teammates, which changed uh, in part the culture. I, I, I hate to overlook what Ricky Rubio does, and that's why I brought it up, because he did play a big part in this transition and helping... Uh, stabilize this team and and show that they could make a move to actually be a playoff contender. Uh, I don't think they make the move for Chris Paul without what Ricky Rubio showed this team could be with decent point guard play last year. So then Chris Paul just takes it to that next level. He you you know what you're going to get from him. You know it's going to be consistent. He's going to bring that leadership that a lot of these young guys on this team, the Devin Bookers, the DeAndre Aytons, Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, these guys watched young Chris Paul when they were kids. So there's a reverence for him. And I, and I don't use that word lightly. I think there is legitimately a reverence for Chris Paul, who he is, his game, and what he has to say, which has a huge impact on that young core, which takes that professionalism to the next step. So I think I think that's Chris Paul's impact. A lot of people will say, well, you know, he's the only reason that this team is where they're at. I don't think that's fair. I think Devin Booker's progression, Mikhail Bridges' progression is a big part of why they are where they are this year. But Chris Paul showed them the way to be a true professional night in, night out, and how to handle winning so far. Do you think Devin Booker is at a different level this year than he was a year ago because he wasn't he wasn't about it when the reporter asked him if he uh he thought he was better this year than he was uh the previous year um what do you see with booker and do you think he's at a different level right now well i think he's at i'll say this uh, i'll take a step back i i was with the organization his rookie year mm-hmm. and i've never seen a player come into the nba ready as ready as he was to have an impact and and to be a a star. I looked at that guy day one and said, this is a different kind of cat. He came in at, I think he had just turned 19 or was just about, uh, I think he had he was 19 when he came in. And I remember myself at 19, I'd met a lot of other 19-year-olds that had come through that, that organization, and he was a different kind of cat, right? He was... You could see star potential. I even remember one of my last assignments with the team was to uh, follow him around in Toronto, his first uh, first experience at All-Star, three-point shooting in a Rising Stars game. And uh, I, and it was Kobe's last All-Star game. And, and I wrote a piece about how there were just so many similarities in, in not necessarily the, the, the game at the time, but in the approach, in in the mentality, in in the way that that they handled themselves, it, it caught me off guard. Uh, so fast forward to now, and I think what what we've seen this year is he's taken another step in that maturity. How many young stars 
would would say, look, I'm willing to give some of that spotlight away to bring in Chris Paul and be okay with, in some ways, saying it isn't just my team. Like it, this has been Devin Booker's team for years. You know, I, probably last three years, he it's been his team. But he was willing to say, hey, I, I want to share that, or or even give up a lot of that to Chris Paul. And I think that gets underlooked in all this because if Devin Booker had been like, nah, I'm not buying into this. I'm not. I, I'm not going to going to you know let myself uh, take a step down in any way, regardless of who this player is coming in. You don't have the results. He had to show that that he bought in for the for the rest of the guys that have been there for a while to to step in. So I don't think he gets credit there, and I think his game is is just as good as last year. Yes, he does not have as many uh, large point uh, point you know outbursts. He's not scoring. 30, 35, 40 uh, on the regular like he did, but that's because he doesn't have to. He has guys he can trust in this lineup now. Mikhail Bridges' offense has, has emerged. Obviously, CB3 uh, is is one of the greatest in, in the mid-range game uh, in, in league history that you can trust. Jake Crowder, he trusts. So I think he's just as good as last year in on court. I think he's matured off the court. So I think he's a better all around player now. It just doesn't necessarily show in the numbers, which is frustrating because, uh, you know, he is a bona fide star in this league. And I think where everybody's going to get that firsthand is in the playoffs. The, the way this team's built, the way Devin Booker's game's built, when this slows down and goes to that half court game that always happens in the playoffs, you're going to see Devin Booker have a few games where, uh, he just takes over, and the league's going to go, oh, now we understand what all those guys have been chirping about in Phoenix. It's not a, it's, it's not as dumb as it sounded before. Absolutely. Um, I feel like that's pretty much set. The backcourt makes sense. The backcourt is elite. We know this. What's quietly something that I wanted to get your perspective on, because um, you're watching more Suns games than I am, is where DeAndre Ayton and Dario Saric is as a front court for this group because Dario Saric is quietly third in usage and has played really well for Phoenix this year and Ayton is just kind of like this forgotten number one overall pick because of just how good Booker and Chris Paul have been and Mikel Bridges gets a lot of love deservedly so but um, what can you tell me about how these two have evolved this year in the front court and how they mix together and how uh, they've played thus far and whether or not they're both long-term pieces um, around this Phoenix Phoenix Suns core. So looking at DeAndre Ayton, he is the defensive uh, heart of this team. And it's another one of those things that doesn't necessarily show up in the box score unless you get heavy into advanced analytics and you can see some of it. But but in general, he's become the anchor of that defense, the, the voice. And that's what Monty Williams and, uh, and James Jones have asked of him. And he stepped up there. Now, offensively, a lot when it comes to his offensive game and what he's been able to do and not do. He's a guy that they've, they've, lowered their expectations offensively because they have so many weapons and said focus on your defense so i struggle with trying to figure out whether he's regressed offensively or it's just simply 
the offense doesn't run through him at all, and that's that's by design because they have so many weapons. But you'll see, I mean, he's still efficient. Even when he scores, you know, 26 like he did the other night, he's, you know, he's like 8 of 10 in his shooting. Like, he's he's efficient in the way he's doing it. But there's still some question marks offensively with with him that could wind up being something that's exploited in the playoffs. Uh, as of late, he's had foul trouble, primarily against Carl Anthony Towns in the in the two games they've played against them recently. We have to see if that becomes a trend. If that becomes a trend, that's going to be immensely problematic going into the back half of the season and, and the playoffs. But I'm not I'm not willing or not ready to 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 sound the alarm on that yet. Uh, Dario Saric has been uh, would be a leading six man of the year candidate if it weren't for for Clarkson and what's going on in, in Utah. I think there'd be a lot more talk, talk about him. Injuries have hampered him a little bit. He was injured to start the season, and then whether you want to count COVID as an injury or, or not, whatever, however you want to describe it, that kept him out as well. So uh, so there's some missed time there, but he has been, since the bubble, a very large part of what this team's been able to do and how they've been able to move the ball. He's a primary ball handler with that second unit. Uh, he's he's done a lot of things. He's probably their best back-to-the-basket guy on the roster, which is is weird. You would think that would be somebody else, but Dario is that guy. And the the interesting part of it is before the bubble, he had basically fallen out of the rotation. People had written him off, thought he's not he's not coming back. He's a free agent uh, on to something else. And then uh, I don't know if it was Monty looking at tape because they weren't using him as a backup center. They were using him as a small forward, power forward, and then all of a sudden in the bubble, they went, he's the backup to DeAndre Ayton and rolled with it. And and it's worked, and it's worked uh, this season as well. So I feel pretty good about the backup center position and, you know, DeAndre Ayton as the starter. The, the, the big area that is a question mark is power forward, both starting and, uh, and second unit, how that's going to play out. If there's a move to be made for the Suns, I think it's, it's likely there. Maybe a backup point guard, but I think that power forward spot is is the biggest glaring deficiency if this team's going to be a true contender. Interesting. Um, when you look at this year and you look at what other rotation help they can get before the deadline that wraps up here in less than forty eight hours, um, what do you what, do, what would you like to see them do? And also, do you think they belong in the real real contender? Uh, stratosphere this summer I think they believe uh, they they belong in that stratosphere based on what's going on with the Lakers right now okay uh, if the Lakers are at full health they're in a stratosphere of their own and then there's the teams like the Suns the Jazz the Clippers the Bucks uh, you know that you that you're looking at that I think are all very much in that same group Denver if they can figure things out uh, a little bit more i think they could wind up in that group as well uh which makes the deadline interesting if you're phoenix i'm a believer in and i think this last 12 months in the world probably have impacted that immensely but when you have an opportunity go after it because nothing is guaranteed we have no clue what 
tomorrow is going to bring or what what's going to happen with chemistry or Chris Paul could fall off a cliff in terms of his play next year just because of age and mileage. You never know. So when that window is open, uh, try to kick it open if you can is, is my belief. So if I'm them, I look at trying to get a guy like Lori Markkinen that there's a lot of a lot of smoke right now that that he's potentially available. Uh, I would look at, you know, does Aaron Gordon fit? Now, I don't know that I don't think that one's realistic. You can't really make the numbers match in terms of that. That's part of the problem here. Unless you want to gut things, they have so many guys on on those rookie contracts that it's going to take a lot to match a big salary. That's why a guy like Lori Markkinen becomes intriguing because he's only making uh, around six million, so he can be had without having to gut things completely. I think where they're likely going to uh, find something is they're probably going to do some small two for one kind of deal because they're at the roster limit right now. They'll make some two small two for one deal at the deadline, and then they'll play the buyout market hard. Whether it, if Drummond gets bought out, which that's not my favorite name. I'm more in favor of uh, going after LaMarcus Aldridge. He played with James Jones. Monty Williams has coached him. Uh, I think he's a guy that would buy into the system and could wind up actually starting at power forward or taking Frank Kaminsky minutes that that he's had in in spot duty and and give them more depth, more more playoff experience. Just a guy that can – can continue to help anchor that. I think that's probably what happens. But if I'm James Jones, I'm going big game hunting. I'm trying to figure out uh, everybody not named Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and Mikhail Bridges uh, is on the table. And I try to take advantage of this opportunity because who knows when it's going to come back around. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Espo, what can we check out from you this week across the internet? Yeah, I head over to... Uh, wherever you find podcasts or, or YouTube, look for the Sun Solar Panel. We're going to be doing a post-deadline recap of everything that the Suns do or don't do and, and talk about that, go in-depth on that. And then every Saturday morning, uh, 8 a.m. Phoenix time. I know it's it's such a great uh, time slot for, uh, for to talk Suns, but uh, we're on 8 a.m. Arizona time uh, every Saturday morning live on YouTube, and you can catch the podcast wherever you get podcasts. All right. Well, go do that. Keep up the great work, my friend, and thank you so much for making the time. Always a pleasure, and, and here whenever you need me. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.